Well, Merry Christmas. Can I say that? It's Advent after all, right? Merry Christmas. Who's excited that we can finally start singing Christmas songs, that it's socially acceptable? Yes. Yes. I, uh, for me, it's like 4th of July, uh, Minnesota State Fair, Christmas season. And Halloween and Thanksgiving are kind of just sub-holidays under Christmas season. Anyone with me? Yeah, everyone else, that's why you're in church this morning, because you are sinners. My wife was all scroogey about it, because I've been listening to Michael Buble since like, yeah, back to school, and she's not feeling it. But now we got Christmas music going. And so some of us are really, really excited about uh, all the things that accompany the Christmas season, right? Hot chocolate and marshmallows and gifts and Christmas trees. And then some of us are a lot less excited about those things. But Vertical Church, what unites all of us here this morning is that all of us have too low a view of the baby who was born in Bethlehem. Here's the point this morning for the entire message. We won't be stunned by the trough until we've stared at the throne. Before we can talk about the birth of Christ, which our boy Justin's going to do next week, we must talk about the throne from which he came. We can't be amazed by Jesus' humility in becoming a baby until we know just how far he descended to become a baby. In other words, how you experience and enjoy this Christmas season is completely contingent on how you answer this question, who is lying in the manger? What child is this? I think when it comes to Christmas, a lot of us are kind of like snow globes, right? So, you know, in a snow globe, if you don't shake it up, it just kind of all settles. And all year, maybe we've kind of been in storage, it's just settled. There's no beauty, there's no awe, there's no majesty. And so what do you have to do with a snow globe? You have to shake it, right? And when you shake it, you see now beautiful things, wonderful things, marvelous things. And so every Christmas season, I think we need to be reshaken. And I think the Lord wants to shake us this morning in Colossians chapter 1. So open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. You're going to need it. Colossians chapter 1. And the question we're trying to answer for the next four weeks is, what child is this? Go ahead and say that back to me because I think you might be falling asleep already. What child is this? Good. Colossians 1 verse 15 is going to give us our very first answer. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this right here will remain forever. Colossians 1 verse 15. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So verse 15 says, the first thing we need to know is the child's relation to God. This child and God. So vertical church, the baby in a manger, Jesus of Nazareth, is, see it in verse 15, the image of the invisible God. The word for image is icon. Think of it like an app on your phone. The icon is the visible reality that the app is there right? It's the part of the app that you actually can see. 
So for Jesus to be the icon or the image of the invisible God, it means he's the visible reality of God. He's the person within the Godhead that you and I can actually see. So Jesus himself said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you remember that? You see, it's not that Jesus was really good at teaching about God. It's not that he knew more about God than everyone else. It's not even that he was really, really like God. Paul is saying that this baby born in Bethlehem is God made visible. So when you see Jesus, you see God. If you've ever wondered, I I wonder what, what does God look like? Well, the answer, theologically, is exactly like Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So for Jesus to be the image of the invisible, invisible God, it means two things. First, it means that Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. We live in one of the most religiously pluralistic cities in America, St. Paul, last I look, has officially 747 occult groups. That's the fourth most of any city in America. So we have all kinds of religions in this city. And a lot of people will look at the major religions of the world, Islam and Judaism and Christianity, and say, well, you all kind of worship the same God, don't you? Like, like you all have, one calls him Allah, and, and you say Yahweh, and you call him Jesus. But really, at the end of the day, it's monotheistic, you're you're really all worshiping the same God. You just have different names, right? One of the funny things of going to a small Christian college, a lot of us have gone or are going to Bethel or Northwestern, is that now forever you will always be expected to know somebody who went to the college you went to. So if if you went to Northwestern, you're forever going to hear, oh, I went to Northwestern, or my friend Ben went to Northwestern. Do you know Ben from Northwestern? Like, I do know a couple dozen Bens from Northwestern. And so what happens when two people know someone with the same name and they're trying to figure out if they're talking about the same person? Well, someone's going to grab their phone, right, and pull up a picture of them, and you're going to either say, oh, yeah, that's, that's him, or, oh, no, that's not him. Okay, verse 15 is Paul pulling out his phone saying, okay, here is what God looks like. Is this who you worship? Because if you don't worship this person, then we're not talking about the same God because this person, Jesus, this is what God looks like. Verse 15 means if you worship Jesus, you are worshiping God. And on the contrary, if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God because he is the God made visible. God in the flesh. You guys, just be amazed by this. The baby at Bethlehem is God in flesh, made visible for you and I to see. But you might say, I thought we were all made in the image of God. So yes, in Genesis 1, we were all created in the image of God, which means as human beings, we are to reflect and showcase and display to everyone and everything what God is like. And when we, we don't do that very well, do we? In fact, a really good way to think about sin is simply when we fail to image God truthfully. 
Sin is when images of God fail to rightly reflect who God is and what God is like. And yet the baby in the manger, Jesus, will be the perfect image of God. So when we say Jesus never sinned, what we mean is he never failed to reflect who God is or what God is like, not even for a millisecond. Jesus was and is always exactly how God is and what God is like because he is God. Therefore, the baby born in Bethlehem is the perfect human being. He is the perfect image bearer. So Jesus being the image of the invisible God means he shows exactly what God is like. It also means for us, more practically, he shows us what we are to be like. Jesus is the perfect human being, which means, you guys, becoming more and more like Jesus will never rob us of life. It will only give us more life. Maybe you feel like Jesus is asking too much out of you right now. Maybe you sense him calling you out of something. Stop looking at porn. Stop sleeping around. Maybe finally delete your Instagram or Facebook just because it's hollowing you out inside. Maybe you feel like it's too much. Or maybe you feel like he's calling you into something and you feel like it's too much. He's calling you to start giving or start serving or start using your gifts or start getting up early and reading the Bible and you feel like it's just too much. And what verse 15 is telling us is because Jesus is the image of God and therefore the perfect human being, everything he leads you into or out of is to give you life, not take life away. He's not leading you toward death. He's leading you toward life. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to obliterate your humanity. He wants to redeem it and enlarge it. You are never more human than when you are following Jesus. Every move toward Jesus is a move toward true humanity, who you were always created to be. So much of the Christian life clicks once we realize Jesus is not trying to ruin my life. He's trying to give me life. So question, what child is this? Who is the baby born in Bethlehem? Well, he is Jesus, the image of God. He will show the world exactly what God is like. And he will show us exactly what we should look like as we grow toward holiness. Praise God. But we haven't seen anything yet. Look back at verse 15. Here's where it gets really good. Okay. He is the image of God. Read that nice and loud for me. Come on. Okay, let's try that again. <laughs> he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. There it is. Part two, we're going to see how this child relates to creation. This child and the creation. So so catch this, when Joseph and Mary look down at their new baby, their new baby, the newborn baby, they are looking at the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean, firstborn? Some groups like Jehovah Witnesses have taken this to mean that Jesus was the first thing ever to be created, and therefore he's kind of the crown of creation. That's heresy. Jesus is not created. Jesus is eternal and uncreated. So what does the word firstborn of creation mean? In Paul's day, 
If you were the firstborn of a family, you were the one who would receive the inheritance. If you were the firstborn, then everything that belonged to your family is yours by right. So when God says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's saying all creation is this child's by right. All things everywhere belong to him, the one laying on straw. Why, we would say. Well, to where God, God takes us next in verse 16. Why does everything belong to him? See it in verse 16. For or because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So what child is this? Who is the baby at Bethlehem? He's the very creator of the world. But isn't isn't God the creator? God the Father? God the Father is the architect. So he's the one who made the plans, decisively draws up the plans. Jesus is the agent. Jesus is the one who actually does the creative work. So just think about this. The little hands that Mary holds are the very hands that made Mary. The little eyes that she's gazing into as they both fall asleep are the same eyes that looked upon her unformed being when he knit her together in her mother's womb. This baby is the creator of all things. Down to the straw he's laying on. And do you hear how emphatic God is in verse 16? Just, he, he's making sure we know how comprehensive Jesus' work is. Look at it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, that doesn't leave anything out, does it? The edge of the known universe is 12 billion light years away. Now, one light year is 6 trillion miles. So, 6 trillion plus 6 trillion plus 6 trillion plus 6 trillion plus six trillion, that's five. Now do that 12 billion times and you've just reached the edge of what our little telescopes can see. What child is this? Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. See this, visible and invisible. Hear God saying there's stuff we see and there's stuff we don't see. There's things we know about and there's things we don't know about, but know this, the baby in the manger made it all. What child is this? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. See this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So all powers, presidents and platforms, governments and gods, diplomats, demons, all powers in all realms and all places at all times will bow to this baby born in Bethlehem. Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What child is this? 
He's the creator of all things. But now see where it gets personal. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hey, look at me. All things includes us. All things includes you. All things includes me. All things includes all things. So if you're listening this morning and thinking, how does this relate to me? Here's how. Verse 16 says, verse 16 answers the two existential questions all of us are asking. Who am I and what am I here for? Verse 16 says, I don't need to know you to know who you are. You are created by no one other than Jesus himself. You are therefore inherently valuable. You are unique and special, not because of anything you've done, but because of solely who created you personally and intentionally. His name is Jesus, the same one we're reading about. So I just want everyone to know this morning that you don't need a job or an accomplishment or a boy or a girl or more money or more success to make you valuable. Your value is built in. Your value is that you were handcrafted by the baby born in Bethlehem. And verse 16 says, I don't need to know you to know what you're here for either. God says you were created through him, see it in the text, and for him. That's your life's purpose. That's life, life's meaning in one word, Jesus. God says in verse 16, because we have life by Jesus, therefore our life is for Jesus. We were made to be in relation with him. We all have a purpose. Meaninglessness is a mirage. Life's purpose is Jesus, the one who created all things and to whom all things is ultimately about. Every molecule in the cosmos was made through Jesus and for Jesus. So let me just ask this. How are you feeling about your resume about now? Does this sound, does this sound like a Jesus who exists for your agenda? Does this sound like the genie Jesus that so many of us believe in where he's just kind of begging people to follow him and he really exists just to make our life a little bit easier? You can't believe in this Jesus, the Jesus of Colossians 1, and still think the universe revolves around you. This Jesus of Colossians 1, this Jesus of Bethlehem, doesn't revolve around us. You guys, we revolve around him. And that's where the text takes us next. And he is before all things. So Jesus said in John 5.58, before Abraham was born, I am. That's Jewish idiom Jesus is using to say, I am Yahweh. I am the eternally existing God. In Revelation twenty two thirteen, 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we must know that the baby in Bethlehem existed far before Bethlehem and far before all things. And if you were to press rewind on the history of the entire universe and rewind all the way back to scene one when Jesus was creating all things, if you keep going back, there you will still find Jesus. 
with the Father and the Spirit, of course. But there's no amount of rewinding that we could do to get to a place where Jesus is not there. Every time, every place, there is this baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus is before all things. What child is this? He's before all things, Colossians 1.17 says, and in him all things hold together. I was reading this week how, um, you know, we have scientists who can theorize a lot of things, but there's still a lot of things we just don't know. In fact, this week we discovered a, a new black hole. Did anyone see this? Yeah, we discovered a new black hole we thought was impossible to find. Um, we have long theorized that a black hole can't be more than 20 times the mass of our sun, or it would essentially devour the universe. Well, this week, um, some Chinese scientists discovered one that's at least 70 times greater than the mass of our sun, and no one can explain how it hasn't eaten up the universe. Another thing scientists can't explain is how atoms actually hold together. There's a law of physics that says two equally charged particles of the same nature repel each other. So one physicist writes, for all that we know, we still can't answer what holds a nucleus together. Why doesn't it fly apart? Another physicist writes, all nuclei have no right to be alive. All should have instantly blown up, yet some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of this inhibition is a secret. Is it? In him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of its power. So look at your fingers. This is weird, but look at your fingers. Your fingers remain on your hand because Jesus is actively and consciously talking to them, saying, stay together. We're breathing right now because Jesus is actively and consciously saying, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Jonathan Edwards wrote, it is because we are in Christ's very mind that our blood runs and our pulse beats and our lungs play and our food digests. If we look upon ourselves and see our hands and our feet, these have existence now because God is there and by an act of infinite power is upholding them. So how do you know that you are on God's mind? Well, you're here. That's how you know. The moment Jesus stops thinking about you is the moment you cease to exist. Feel the intimacy here. Now with that in mind, loved ones, look to the manger. The one being held is the one upholding the universe. What child is this? He's the origin of the universe. He's the integrity of the universe. He's the purpose of the universe. He's the sustainer of the universe. His name is Jesus. And side note, this is why we don't need anything more than Jesus. 
because there is nothing more than Jesus. You can't add to Jesus. His value and worth cannot be increased. If you have a scale, one of those old school scales, and you put Jesus on one end and Jesus plus everything on the other end, the scale is balanced because everything only gets its value in Jesus. There is nothing outside of Christ. Everything that exists, exists because of its relation to the sustainer and creator of all things, the baby born at Bethlehem. Wow. This is the child. So in Colossians 1, Paul has showed us now Jesus' relation to God, Jesus' relation to the creation, and now he's, he goes somewhere very interesting. Colossians 1.17, meet me there. Colossians 1.17, and Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the, stop there. What would you think he would write? I would think he would write maybe the head of the world, right? He's the head of the universe. He's the head of, he's the head of the church. This child in the church. The cosmic Jesus who looks out across all things, galaxies, universes, the one thing he unites himself to, the one thing he identifies himself with is, you guys, us. The church. We need a higher view of the church. Again, this is where Colossians 1 gets personal because we could... We could say Jesus is the image of God. We could say he's the creator of all things. We could say he's the one sustaining and upholding the universe. And that all feels very distant. But when we see him now as the head of the church, Paul's saying that he, the supreme and sovereign being, has united himself to you and me. That just as your head is united to your body, Jesus is united to his church. And we just spent all fall in Romans chapter 8 unfolding this idea of union with Christ, that we are in Christ, so we're safe before God, and Christ is in us, so we have a power source to follow God. All of Romans chapter 8, all of the benefits of the gospel, all of it is because of this verse right here. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus has united himself to us. Why is that such good news? See it in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. If I were to start a metal band, that's what we're calling ourselves right there. Firstborn from the dead. So just like in verse 15, when we learn that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, which means he owns all creation, it's his and rule, right, and rank, and ownership. Here, Paul is saying there's another realm, an entirely different reality, the dead, and Jesus holds claim over them too. Listen to Jesus in Revelation 1.18. Remember, this is the same person who's in the manger. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. 
So if the head has the keys, the body has the keys also. If the head rises in victory, the body follows him in his triumph. And that means when God says Jesus is the beginning, you guys, he's talking about resurrection here. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't a magic trick. It was a new beginning. It was a beginning of new creation. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of the renewal of everything. That's why Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's who's in the manger. What child is this? This child is the beginning. This child owns the dead. This child will raise to life everyone who believes in him so that everyone who believes in him will never die. That's who's swaddled in the blanket. And if all of that's true, the logical conclusion is at the end of verse 18, he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means surpassing all others. So God's saying, when we see the Jesus of Colossians 1, when we look to the baby born in Bethlehem, we think he's the only thing that matters. Clearly, he must be first in my life and everything in my life. And so here's the question, guys. Is Jesus preeminent in your life? Is he first always and in everything? Maybe you say, you know, Jesus is present in my life. Yeah, I think about him, not all the time, but he's definitely a piece of my life. I mean, I read my Bible every day. Jesus is a present reality in my life. Maybe you'd say Jesus is prominent in your life. He's not only a part of your life, he's a huge part of your life. He's for sure a top priority in your life. This Christmas season, God wants his son not only to be present in our life or not even prominent, but preeminent in our life. The thing in our life that surpasses all other things and it's not even close. That's the application of this text. As we move closer and closer to Christmas Day, and the world around us just loses their minds over shopping and food and Santa, and none of those things are bad, but what God wants for vertical church is to slow down and to see and savor Jesus as preeminent, surpassing everything. So what do you need to do in your life this month to slow down and see Jesus as preeminent. If you're a parent of little ones, we made an Advent guide. It's family worship devotionals, one per week. They're upstairs in Vertical Kids. Grab one on your way out. It's just what, whatever we can do, you guys, this is what God wants for us, that in everything he might be preeminent. So lastly, let's see Paul's summary verse in verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's what Christmas is all about. Verse 19, Christmas is not about a baby. 
Christmas is about a baby who is God. A baby in which all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then see this, and through him to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The last point of this text is the child and the cross. What's this child's relationship to the cross? And I'm not going to talk much about this because Pastor Jim is going to take us there on week three. So I just want to close how Paul closes. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, right here, making peace by the blood of his cross. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus in Luke 2.14, they said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he is well pleased. Why did they declare peace? You could have declared a lot of things. Well, because they knew that this baby was born for the cross. They knew ultimately this child was here to bring glory to God and peace to you and me. And how will the peace be achieved? See it in verse 20. And through him, here it is, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What a dichotomy, right? Peace by blood. By going to the cross and dying in our place, Jesus will be our reconciliation. Not just our forgiveness. Forgiveness is the absence of animosity. Reconciliation is deeper than that. It's the presence of love. Forgiveness says, I forgive you, you can go now. Reconciliation says, I forgive you, you can come now. Vertical church, that's Christmas. I forgive you, you can come now. Advent is all about coming. Don't you see, Jesus of Colossians 1 is not a distant, far off, unapproachable God. He goes to the cross to tell you, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So would you come to Jesus this morning for the first time or for the 10,000th time? Would you come to Jesus? We'll have elders up front after service always ready and excited to pray with you if you want to come to Jesus. But this year, Vertical Church, let's seek to have a bigger vision of the baby in Bethlehem. As we gain a greater, higher, more glorious vision of Jesus, Christmas and the birth of Jesus will be that much more amazing. There's a scene in Prince Caspian where Lucy runs into Aslan and she hasn't seen him for a long time and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little, little child. And she says, not because you're bigger? And he says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Vertical Church, every Christmas season, let's find him bigger. Let's pray.